The New Dentist Boost Camp is a one-of-a-kind CE course focusing on new dentists up to six years out of school. The next New Dentist Boost Camp, April 12th to 14th, has a few spots available live for interactive, in-person learning and unlimited spots to join us via live stream, viewable from any web browser. Register to be there live or view the live stream at www.dentistboost.com. Here are some Boost Campers talking about their experience from the first Boost Camp. Hope to see you there. New Dentist Boost Camp really gives us like a lot of resources that I didn't know about before, so it was really nice and some eye-opener, and it kind of creates a camaraderie for us um, to be able to see people who are still in dental school or freshly out or have been in associateship for a couple years or even somebody who has already pra- um, purchased their own practice. So it's really great to kind of have a network of a support system, and I think it's super worth it and really yeah, worth your time. It's tailored to younger dentists, so it's a uh, it's a great transition from dental school to CE in the real world. So you're surrounded by 19 other other uh, people that are in similar situations as you. So you're free to ask the questions you want to ask, and uh, it, you're a little more comfortable in that situation. Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and Attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are the Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. It's good to have you, Paul. It's good to see you, and welcome to another episode of the Dental Amigos. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Jonathan Van Horn, CPA. Uh, Jonathan is a certified public accountant who, uh, like me, represents dentists. Uh, and his real primary uh, niche, even within that niche, are dentists that are new to practice ownership. So either as a startup or a uh, or an acquisition. Uh, Jonathan is the creator of Dentist Metrics, uh, which we're going to talk about in uh, in some detail today. And that, in the meantime, though, it's a, a concept that aims to completely automate and outsource uh, bookkeeping, financial reporting and tax portion of the dental uh, the dental business so that owners can focus on running their business and being dentists. Um, and uh, Jonathan is also uh, a host of a very popular podcast called Start Your Dental Practice. Uh, so fellow podcaster here, it's always fun for us. And now without further ado, here's Jonathan Van Horn. Uh, welcome, amigo, and thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Rob and Dr. Paul. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm really excited. Thanks, Jonathan. We'd like to start with some hard-hitting questions. So uh, I would like to ask you, uh, if we go out for nachos where you live uh, and you get to order, what, and I'm with you, uh, what is your favorite nacho topping? Uh, I, I always have a, a soft spot in my heart for chicken. I think that it's the, it's the, if you're looking for a meat to go on a nacho, I think that it's, a, it's the best one. 
I agree with you. I my favorite uh, nachos, the macho nachos at Alves, just a few blocks away here in Philadelphia. That is uh, my favorite topping. And since I'm a dentist and I'm always looking for free stuff, uh, I buy a lot of nachos each year. And as an accountant, uh, can I write those nachos off on my tax returns? <laughs> for, for you, I'll say yes. No, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Here's Jonathan. Here, here's a better one. If, if Paul buys the nachos for Rob Montgomery at Alves and the drinks, can he write it off? That that's the important question. Yeah, so you know the, the the old saying, you can write off uh, anything anything you put on a tax return is a write off. But the legal way, you know, is, is in terms of the Internal Revenue Code, and this actually changed at the end of 2017 in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, is that you know meals and entertainment uh, can be deductible. Um, it's a little bit grayer than it used to be. To be honest with you, it used to be that if it was um, it was a uh, incidental meal to a meeting. Then it could be written off to the tune of 50%. Um, the, the, the mindset behind the government was if you pay for the meal and it's a business meeting, you know, half of it's going to be for you and half of it's going to be for somebody else. Regardless of if there's 100 people there, that was kind of their thought process, which seemed odd, right? Yeah, but, right. Um, they, 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 they've, they've backed away on that a bit and they've changed those rules around to where it's a bit more specific on if you can or cannot deduct any types of meals or entertainment in, in particularly. Um, and then they've just recently, like in the last month, came out with another um, uh, announcement, pronouncement to, to clarify those a bit more, which anytime they clarify something, they actually still mean it sometimes raises more questions. Um, so it's all very, very new. So we're still having to kind of see how that all rolls out. The, the gist of it is, is that if it has a business purpose, um, then you can deduct it. Um, it's probably going to be the to the tune of fifty percent being deducted. Um, if the uh, if it's for your staff, like a, a meeting or something like that in your office, then at that point you, you're you're probably going to be able to write off one hundred percent of it. Yeah. And I haven't I haven't read, re-read through that pronouncement since I looked at it initially. So um, I, I'm hoping I'm quoting that correctly. Uh, but that's uh, that's that, that's how I remember it. Thanks, so, Jonathan. So, so, so summary is. Paul, Shabai, Rob, Nachos, yeah, and Margaritas. Yeah. It's our meeting, right? It's our team meeting for Nachos. <laughs> to discuss the podcast. Uh, can another, you write off love? I think you can write off love, so I'm going to write it off. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jonathan, I've had you know the, the pleasure of, of hearing you speak uh, at uh, the Ideal Practices uh, Startup Practice Blueprint uh, probably too many times to count now, and it's always nice to, to see you at those events and, and hear what you have to say. So I know a lot about, about you, and some of our listeners probably do, but... Tell us, you know, what your role is in the in the dental world. So m- we see our role at Dentist Metrics as being guides to new practice owners. Um, there's a lot, and like Rob, you can you know uh, attest to this that there's a lot that our clients don't know that they don't know. Um, How about and it? in the financial world, accounting world tax world, we find that there's a lot of docs out there, young docs especially, that they'll do some research, but they don't really know how it pertains to their situation. Um, and we find ourselves as being the guide to those new business owners to help them really navigate that landscape of, you know, how do I, what even is accounting? Uh, what even is tax planning? How can I, you know, be proactive in making sure I pay the least amount in taxes as possible that's legal? 
how do I work around the internal revenue code and, you know, or work with their internal revenue code? It's probably a, a, that's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to allow myself to be paying in what I'm legally obligated to pay in as a, as a citizen uh, of the U S because of all the benefits that I, I, I reap from said citizenship. Um, but still, you know, make sure that I have, you know, savings to where I'm not paying in too much that, you know, it seems this excessive compared to what the internal revenue code would afford me. And, you know, that that's where we are. And we find that a lot of people have misconceptions about CPAs in general, because so we're, we are a CPA firm. No, don't get me wrong. You know, I don't, I'm not just trying to phrase it differently because of the fact that that's, you know, kind of like the new age thing to do. We are a CPA firm, but whenever we get new clients in, we have a repetitive issue with the majority of those clients and it's the, what I just described to you. And so we have to view ourselves a little bit differently because the traditional CPA firm model does not lend itself to being that guide in most cases. So, so we focus on the new practice owner. We focus a lot on education of, you know, how, of, of the tax code, education of accounting, how to understand your numbers, how, under, how to understand your accounting reports, what those accounting reports mean, how to use them to you know, drive profitability, how to hold your employees accountable, and all the little pieces that go along with that. So it, it's a bit you know, nebulous in that, in, in that way, but you know, we're there to help you through that process as much as we can as a business advisor. And you know, we've got about 150 dental practices that we help out with that. We've got clients in you know, over 30 states uh, and you know, we really enjoy doing what we do. Yeah, that's cool. And, and that's, that's what I've observed too. And I think a lot of people have, uh, the misconception that, you know, the CPA's role and sole role is to file taxes. And, right. and I guess there are CPAs that do that and that's, and that's okay. But, you know, you kind of do the, the, the accounting version of what, of what we do, which is, you know, there's sort of like the basic stuff and then you provide the, the, the industry expertise and the guidance. And as you said, you know, you're a business advisor. Uh, you're not just doing uh, tax returns. And, you know, whenever I talk to somebody, you know, a new client and say, you know, who's your CPA? You know, do you need a referral? And they'll say, well, I have a CPA. Uh, and uh, I, do they do dental and do they have dental clients? Yes, yes, they file, you know, they have dental clients, they file tax returns. So I'm like, well, that's not a dental focused CPA, you know. I want them to be working with uh, with a business advisor, and I think the neat thing it sounds like too, what you've been able to do is really take the profession and then kind of use that to do more with it, which you know to me is is a really exciting thing. Yeah, it's really fun. We get to, to work with people that uh, are new business owners. They're excited about business ownership. They might be a little bit scared in some ways, but we help them through that, and that's uh, that's that, that's a lot of fun for us. Yeah. Now, so Jonathan, what is dentist metrics i mean when you talk about automating and outsourcing certain things like kind of what is the what is the sort of i wouldn't say secret sauce but like what is it how how do you guys go about that and why what what how are you different in that regard yeah so so the the, the thing is is there's there's not a really a, a secret sauce per se it's really that we just work really hard with our clients to make sure that they can focus on the things that are important in their practice so um, you know, with the automation of accounting, uh, we can, you know, make it to where people, you know, typically people will have, you know, their financial reports within 10 days of the end of the, of, of the business close of the month. And they, the, all they have to do is, you know, once 
or twice a month is to answer an email about what these 10 transactions are. You know, we'll give them what our, you know, our guess is, um, but they'll help us out with, with defining that more accurately. Um, and, you know, that frees up a lot of time for the practice owner, that uh, frees up a lot of time for the practice's employees. Um, and we actually did uh, a poll on some clients before to see about how much time we were saving clients with that. Um, and this was back whenever we were taking on clients that were already uh, existing practices. Um, and we'll take on people that have, have acquired a practice in the last, in the recent past. But uh, we were finding that we were saving people between 15 and 25 hours a month um, by having us do this accounting for them. Wow. Whether it was making it easier for the practice owner to understand the fin- what the numbers meant, or it was taking time off from the office manager to having to go in and you know mark on the credit card statements what everything was. You know, we completely get rid of all that. So that office manager or that practice owner can focus on more important things like maybe getting out into the community and networking or, you know, working on a marketing campaign or, you know, providing a class to the employees or, you know, working on AR or, or, you know, getting people in for treatment plans that never got scheduled. Like things that are actually important for the practice growing, they can refocus all that time into that. Um, And so that's, that is what our focus is. Um, we find that a lot of CPAs, again, not all, a, a lot of CPAs focus on compliance, which basically just means, you know, not necessarily a get out of jail free card, but a, you know, keep myself out of jail uh, card. You know, make sure that I don't get big, big letters in the mail saying I owe a bunch of money is what a lot of CPAs focus on. Um, and so I guess if you want to paint us in a, a different stroke, um, then that is our different stroke is that we focus on you know, making sure the practice owner is able to focus on their practice as well as, you know, have the education behind that to be able to have a, a really great practice, hopefully. John, I think that's just really awesome. We've had a lot of uh, discussion on the podcast about these subjects. So as an enthusiastic uh, but exhausted uh, pr- pr- uh, owner of two practices and two uh, human beings, what I would like to share with our listeners, I think what you do is great, is that, you know, uh, my dad was a dentist and, you know, years ago, they didn't have to deal with parts of the dental practice because they just didn't exist. I mean, I did a CE course recently. We had sponsors and we had, we had an IT sponsor and it was great. And he talked about what he did with, you know, the practice and all the upgrades to the software. And, and you know, that was something that dentists from 30 years ago just didn't have to deal with. But everyone always had to deal with this part of their business. And it's not the fun part. And then when you save people 15 hours a week, I just want to, you know, just highlight to our listeners, you're saving them the good hours because this stuff either has to be done after work, before work, at lunch, on the weekends. So you're saving them hours that are so valuable, which I just think is great. Yeah, we have a, you know, before I was in the dental industry, I always looked at dentists and I was like, why do they have a day of admin? Um, you know, they, they're, they're working four days and they have a day of admin. Um, and then, you know, whenever we got into the dental industry, I guess five or six years ago, um, you know, we quickly realized that that was the reason is because they're doing dentistry all week long. They don't have time to, you know, work on the business they're because they're always working in the business. I would love if just so, like, you know, I could create yeah. and you're doing it. Dennis should really not tell people they work four days a week because they work on patients four days a week. But, you know, all that other stuff that they do, 
everybody else in the world, they call that work, you know, yeah, right. so, running, you know, running the business. Yeah. So there was 20, day 15, off. 20, 25 hours that happen before and after at lunch. That's real work. And that's why most dentists really are working 50 to 60 hours a week. They just, it just doesn't, they just don't understand that. And when you can take some of that away from them, that's just, I just think that's great. Yeah. And we look, that's, that's what we, that's what we strive to do. I mean, that's, that's what we get excited about and that's what our team's been, been trained to do. Yeah, that's cool. Good stuff. Yeah, let me know when you get into the law firm niche, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, right. so. <laughs> I'm envious as I listen to this. Um, no, we, we actually I have a really good good accountant, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Huh. Um, but uh, so what we reached out to you most recently, Jonathan, and you and I have, have discussed this before, and Paul and I mm-hmm. find ourselves talking about really these two topics you know fairly often and you know pretty recently we had a a little uh, thread going on what was that was that nachos chair uh, practices the chair yeah. practices yeah which is a great facebook group that uh you know a lot of us uh participate on and uh you know whether to you should buy a house or a practice first and so mm-hmm. i want to talk about that and then i want to talk about my other favorite real estate uh question which is should you buy the real estate where uh where your practice is located so um realizing that there are a lot of facets to both of those but you know i think it's really good for people to kind of hear some of the talking points and some of the things to kind of keep in mind so let's uh let's start with the uh with the subject of you know buying a house versus buying a practice you know and this specifically i think the facebook post paul was just that hey i've got an opportunity to buy a practice Uh, i'm concerned because i also want to buy a house if i buy a house am i going to be able to buy a practice in the near future and uh as is also you know often the custom on a blog or a group lots of people you know gave very definite uh advice without probably knowing all the circumstances nobody's (laughs) afraid to chime in right um so we're going to do that to you a little bit here jonathan but sure tell us you know kind of what's you know if a client walks into your office and says just that you know hey uh, i'm thinking about practice ownership i'm an associate now i'm sort of like medium paid you know i'm not well paid i'm not underpaid you know i'm not not knocking it dead but i've got this pretty good opportunity to buy this practice I can, you know, increase my salary, but I also would really like to buy a house because I'm at that kind of time in my life, and uh, and my spouse uh, feels as though it's that our time of the, uh, of our lives to do that. What do you tell that person? So, what I would tell that person is is that the most important element of that question is what practice are they buying. Um, are they doing a startup or are they buying a whole, you know, a, an existing practice? Okay. And if it's the latter, then it becomes down to what level of quality is that practice? And, I, and I'm, when I say quality, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the ability of the, the, the current dentist or anything or, the, you know, how nice the furniture is or anything like that. I'm talking about what's the cash flow doing? Um, because the bank may care, they may care if you have a home loan. They may not care if you have a home loan, right. if you're getting a really great cash flowing practice. And that also depends on how expensive your home is going to be. Because what they'll look at is they'll look at your total debt, uh, total debt amount, as well as your cash outflow a month. So if you're in Arkansas and you're going to be buying a, you know, 
a $250,000 a year home, then, or you're in New York and you're going to be buying an $800,000 home. Those are two very different questions. Right. Um, or and the answer is very different. Um, so in general, I tell people, if you've got a really good practice, you're going to be able to find a bank that will lend you the money. Um, if you have a home already and you go to buy a practice, if it is not one of the big dental lenders, then they'll probably want to put you on an SBA loan, which would mean you'd have to fit your house as a guarantee on the loan, effectively. That's just a requirement. Let's just stop for uh, a second. Just talk about that briefly, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize what an SBA loan is and what that means to you know to guys sure. like you and me. Like we hear that and we cringe and sort of say, "Ooh, mm-hmm. wow!" Is isn't there no other alternative? I think just by virtue of the fact that it's, hey, it's the SBA, the government's got this loan program that's out to help us. I mean, you know, that is not the you know, the first option for financing, as you said. Right. So that's a big one where, you know, the SBA, if they're involved, and that what that means is it's a government-backed loan. So if the local bank or whoever makes the loan, uh, if there's a default, the government will step in and, and, uh, and guarantee that. But, you know, among other things, you know, you're going to pay – big fees for that, very expensive loan fees for the the guarantee fee. Uh, but they also expect a lot of collateral that the traditional dental lenders won't ask for. So you're probably looking right. at, you know, if you're borrowing, going SBA on a, on a practice loan, the SBA is going to require a, a lien, a mortgage on your house, which, yeah. you know, go to a dental lender, you're not going to see that, right? Right. So, so one, one, you know, point for not buying the house is if you do the SBA and you don't have a house, there's nothing they can put the lien on. <laughs> there you go. But, yeah. but there's that's a very minor point in my mind um, because of all the other factors going. Um, in terms of will that affect my ability to get a loan? You know, it, it, I think it's impossible to say that it will not affect your ability to get a loan in you know, a, a lot in, a, in a, a vast array of specific cases, but I don't think that's going to be the deciding factor in a large, large majority of practice acquisitions. If, you know, and, and I would make the argument, if that tipping point is that you have a reasonable home loan that they're not going to do the money, then that practice may not be the best practice. It, it may, they may be saving you if that's the yeah, case. Right. Because, I, I've seen banks, you know, salivating to get certain loans <laughs> um, it, it, because of the because of the practice that is selling. You know, it's a big practice doing, you know, 1.4 million a year in revenue. It's got one doctor and you know, five staff members, and the associate, you know, has been helping, has been been mentored by this doctor for a while. That bank doesn't care, and the ca- it's cash flowing seven hundred thousand dollars a year. That bank doesn't care if that person has a home loan. It's almost they're going to find a way to get that money to you, right? If it's a big, if they understand dental lending, um, but if it's one of those borderline cases where it's not this dream, you know, I, I you know, ideal situation, the home loan could negatively impact your 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 chances. I won't say it's gonna it's going to be the you know it's gonna make it where you don't get the loan. I think it could slightly negatively impact your chances. So if you had a hundred percent chance before, maybe it's a 94% chance now. I don't think it's, and then the, the beauty is, is if that doesn't work out, 
there are a hundred other banks out there that might not pay attention to that. There's something um, I'd like to chime in with though, because you guys are having a really great discussion on the numbers and things like this. But I, it, the owning a home uh, prevents you from getting a loan for a practice, and I can say this lately as a broker, it, uh, it prevents you from getting a loan because you never apply for the loan, because you never apply for the loan, because your spouse never considers moving to that area. Yeah, right. uh, so I wrote, sure. uh, I mean, if the greatest thing, you know, what's your favorite thing to do besides spending time with your family, because everyone's supposed to say that, let's just say it's eating nachos. Uh, the opposite of that is moving. So you could have, you know, moving, we all remember from college, dental school, any of these times, it's just, it's, it's a terrible experience. And people will do almost anything not to move. So I I've had situations as a broker that were eye-opening to me where I have someone say to me, I want to buy a practice. Please find an acquisition for me. I, w- I don't want to be in this associ- associateship anymore. This is before they meet a Rob Montgomery, before they meet a Jonathan Van Horn. So I find them someplace and I say, okay, this is 20 miles from where you live. And their answer is, I don't want to do it. My wife doesn't want to move. My husband doesn't want to move. And I said, why'd you buy a house? And they said, well, we just thought it was the right time. So maintaining your geographic flexibility in 2018 is just so important. And these are stories you guys never even hear about because they never get to you because they talk to a broker. I tell them where this practice is that does $900,000 a year and they can make three fifty. dollars and they are just totally unwilling to consider it because their home purchase uh, prevents them from doing it from an emotional perspective. And that's sure. what I was saying yeah. on this group is, we think these this world, even the startup world too, you know, dentists tend to think it's about numbers, but it's really about people. And in this work, this scenario is about the people in your life, mainly your spouse and your kids. Well, it's not even just emotionally too. Though, Paul, there's there's a, an actual dollar cost oh, yeah, with right doing through. that. You know, so the, the transaction costs. Like if you buy a house in one area and then you find you want to move, even if you're willing to do the move yeah. and buy a house someplace else, you have to move, which means you have to sell your house, which means you have to pay a realtor, which means you have to go through all those other expenses. Yeah, and when you're fiddling around with the move, you're not making money practicing dentistry either. You know, so yeah. it does have, you know, it's not even just an emotional thing. There's There are transaction costs uh, associated with that. I mean, geez, where we are in Philadelphia, the, the real estate transfer tax alone is is four percent, you know, which, you know, you get into the the four percent for that plus the six percent for your realtor, and it's like, wow, it's going to cost me ten percent to sell my house, you know, like, and that becomes a for some people that can be a real number. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. And- I'm sure your clients say this, Jonathan, on this group, people are saying it. And I say this with the most nacho loving kindness way, but they kept saying, I want to buy a home because I want to build up equity. And I always just think that's one of those catchphrases, because if you need that equity, you can't just rip out part of your family room and use something to pay for in your life. And you just strangle your cash flow a lot of times when you have a home. And I just, I try to encourage, recommend uh, to my residents that say, hey, just keep yourself flexible by renting. You can always buy a home. Uh, you may want to move somewhere for a good practice that you're not considering. So that's a, that's just my nacho two cents on it from a yeah. non-getting the loan or not. That, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, it definitely will require, if you're designed to purchase a home, it'll definitely require, if you have a spouse and kids and things like that, for, for you to, to take that into consideration of, you know, hey, spouse, um, I'm thinking about buying this practice that is you know, geographically favorable of us to be able to, to purchase, but if this one doesn't work out, you know, I still want to own a practice at some point. That may mean we may have to move again. If, the, if we are being tied down to a, a spot then you know maybe we should consider renting instead. 
um, you know, and that, and that's just a, a discussion between the, the spouse and or the, the couple and, and being honest about themselves. Now that doesn't mean that things can't change over time, you know, that you say, okay, yes, we'll be able to move. Um, and then, you know, you know, either you become emotionally attached or financially attached to the house because we've all, you know, we've all seen what happened in 2008 when everybody, you know, the real estate markets just plummeted and people got stuck upside down in houses. I mean, that's a very real risk that I think that a lot of people that are buying houses for the first time are very ignorant to. Hopefully, hopefully they do the research and they, you know, find something online that says, or they talk to someone who bought a house and got stuck in it um, because they couldn't move. Um, but, you know, that, that is a very real financial risk that you take when you repurchase a home is that you can get stuck in it. And then there's obviously economic expenditures of, of, of moving that have to be taken into consideration as well. Um, but you know, in, in terms of, you know, buying the house versus buying the practice first, um, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I agree with everything that, that both of you have said. Um, but as far as in terms of getting the loan or not, I, I've just not seen that be that big of an issue. If it's an acquisition on a practice, it's a very good practice. Well, and, and so, and, and I'm going to ask you a question about that in a second, but, you know, the other thing, too, that I think people sort of have a misconception about sometimes or overlook is when you talk about equity, like you really need to be there for a while before you get that equity. Sure. I mean, when yeah. you borrow that money from the bank, like for the first uh, however many years, John, you can tell us you're paying more interest than you're paying principal. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the rule of thumb that I, I'd always heard whenever we were doing our research for buying our first house was like, if you're not planning on being there for five years, at least you should rent. Um, and because you're, you're, uh, you know, unless you're in a market that just, you know, skyrockets in value, which you should not be banking on that happening, that shouldn't be in your thought process. Um, because you bet that's basically just a windfall is how you should approach those types of things. Um, then you shouldn't make that decision to go there unless you're willing to be there for five years. If you do, if you stay there for five years, then that's the turnaround point of breaking even on average from all the studies I read about, you know, owning a home and then selling it. Um, now that's obviously independent of the market crashing, but that's, you know, just kind of the rule of thumb. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, and, and I think that's, you know, if anything, I would say you might want to even stretch that out a few more years now, uh, just because the real estate market in a lot of areas of the country has been so flat for so long. Yeah, and now some of the tax laws too have made it a little less advantageous to uh, to own a home. And too. just to chime in about one another thing that I know nothing about the stock market. Um, everybody, <laughs> when the stock market is up, you know, three months ago, people are oh, look at what I'm worth. This is great. Meanwhile, they're not worth. They have not sold anything. Now, when it comes, you know, tumbling down, everyone says, "Well, well, well, it can go back up again." But in both scenarios, they have not, you know, dis- disengaged from their stock position. So, you know, they really are not worth more or less. It's the same thing with homeownership. So when they say mm-hmm. our house is tr- tripled in value, I'm like, yeah, you're not you're not leaving it anytime soon. So you never know where it's going to be when you do leave it. So it's just it's just I'm amazed at how emotional this scenario gets about stuff where people think it's about numbers. So yeah, yeah. well, so, and, so the, and, you know, I don't know if this is a dental only thing, but every study I've read recently has said that people are younger people are renting more on average now than ever before. Right. Um, so I don't think that means that home ownership is necessarily declining. I just find I've just been seeing that renting is much more popular now because people don't want to keep up with the yard. They don't want to keep up with 
you know, the, you know, outside of the house. They don't want to keep up with, um, they don't want to have to, you know, make decisions as far as being somewhere for a long period of time because people move more often than they used to in the past. Um, so I'm definitely seeing that people are renting more often now, but in dentistry, I do seem to hear the same thing you guys are saying of, you know, young family buying a house, um, and then, you know, going out and, and finding a practice. Uh, and I, I think that may just be because of the fact that the age that a lot of people finish school and they're having to move anyways because they usually don't stay. I mean, some people obviously stay where they went to school, but they're having to move anyways. And so they have this potential earning ability that states to them, I'm seeing all these other buy, people buy houses, so maybe I should buy a house too. And everything that we've talked about so far, you know, points to the fact that 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 may may not be the best decision. It should never be a to me buying a house is a financial decision, obviously, because you've got to pay money for it and you've got to figure out how much your monthly outlay is going to be um, for you know versus your revenue or your income. But you shouldn't, in my mind, if you're a young person, unless you're buying the house you're going to retire in, then you shouldn't be thinking about that as a long term investment. Uh, you should probably be renting. That's good. Good uh, advice. An independent question from the: Should I buy a house first or buy a practice first? Hmm. So, so you've qualified a couple of times. You've talked about buying a practice. Now, um, you're distinguishing that from doing a startup. So, if somebody says, "Hey, right. I want to do a startup. Should I do my startup or should I buy a house?" Is is a different answer as far as financing goes? That was a little bit easier. That was a little bit easier for me. Um, the the you should be doing the practice first if you're going to be doing a startup because. Um, like Mr. Paul said, you can get stuck in a spot and that becomes, you, you get this, my, the, the singular view that the, the area that you're in is where you have to practice. And as, you know, Rob, as you can say that, you know, we see startup practices all over the country. Some that, you know, that in a lot of the times it's because of the area that they go to. Um, and you don't want to be stuck in a certain area because of your geographic roots being laid down. Right. So that is a little bit easier because it's, you know, there are some areas of the country, some areas of the country that are great to live in, but are bad to practice in. Right. Um, and if you think about that for a second, that makes a lot of sense because if it's great to live in, there's probably gonna be a lot of competition. Right. <laughs> um, and competition is not necessarily bad, but it definitely makes it harder sometimes. That's like Jamie Amos says that, you know, somebody says, where, where's the best place to do a startup? He said, well, you have to promise you're going to go there. Yeah, yeah right. Yes, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Paul has that conversation a lot of times with people. If you have practice opportunities or associate opportunities in some more, I would say, less urban, more remote yeah. places. I can't know. ever go to Erie PA. They'll, 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 they'll don't like me because I use that as an example. So a lot of times I say, okay, I got a great practice. It's in Erie PA. And I just use that because I think it's sort of the middle of Pennsylvania. And no one says, oh, I'm ready to go there. And I said, see, you know, that's, uh, it's it's understandable, but it's just a, it's a different landscape. I mean, I would say, and I've shared with Rob, most of the people in my dental generation went back and practiced where they grew up, but now it's just a whole it's a really different landscape for everyone out there. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And with a startup again, you know, there's everybody's situation's a little bit different. Um, if you're an associate making a certain amount of money a month, and you can prove to the bank that you're going to have continued employment after your startup opens which, you know, for some people is an awful proposition, but sometimes what you have to do to get the deal done, um, then as long as you can cash flow the note plus the mortgage, 
they're usually going to be okay with that. But I think that in this, if you're like a hundred percent, I'm going to do a startup. Like that's what your personal strengths lend yourself to. Um, then man, putting down roots to a point where you can't get out of those roots, uh, is a very dangerous proposition if you're going to do a startup, because if you're going to do a startup, why not do it where you're going to be able to knock it out of the park rather than just where you end up being. And that doesn't mean that someone's going to do a great job you know, doing a startup down the street from the area they're, they're, they're familiar with, but the path of least resistance may be somewhere else. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard enough. I mean, it's, but that's just, that's part of the whole planning thing. You know, this is just one more aspect of if you prepare and you work with the right people and you have the, the right game plan, you can really stack the deck to, to succeed as opposed to, you know, doing things backwards and by yourself. And then, you know, three years later, wondering why you still have, you know, two other part-time jobs when you have yeah. a startup, you know, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but you did it at cheap, you know, you did it on the cheap, right? You, you saved a lot of money with it, but so that's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Now, so then our, our next uh, burning real estate uh, issue and question, you know, surrounds whether or not uh, people should, you know, own the practice, own the real estate where the practice is located. Um, it's, you know, a, a subject that I just find myself discussing more and more with people and just really becoming kind of more kind of, you know, solidifying more my position that you know, people really have to be careful about buying the real estate. And I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of people just really miss the, miss the point here that if you are going to uh, own a dental practice, the place where you should be is the place where you can make the most money. You know, it's not about mm -hmm. owning the real estate versus leasing. And, you know, we'll talk about some of that. But to me, the first thing what I kind of want to lead off with is, you know, I look at this, Jonathan, and say there are costs associated with owning real estate. Like, it's not like same thing as with a house. Like, you just don't pay the bank and every month you're building equity in that in that in that dental office real estate loan that you have like you've got taxes you've got interest you have depreciation recapture when you go to sell like this is not free money no yeah absolutely not you know and i think a lot of people think well it's just going to be cheaper if i if i own this i'm not going to be paying a landlord but if you're not paying a landlord to some extent you know you're you're paying a bank you know, and uh, so again, it's not a one-to-one -one thing. And so, like, let's talk about what some of those what some of those costs are, and and you know, is there anything that you see that are that kind of weigh one way or the other, or even some you know, myths or misconceptions that that some of your clients may have when they're kind of looking at that at that decision whether to whether to rent or or own their real estate. Sure. So. As far as coming down to the question of should I own my real estate in my practice or should I not, um, there are a few different questions that each doctor has to kind of answer themselves. Um, because this is what, you know, it, it's fairly interesting is that, you know, every every person has, has specific things that they have that they want to achieve and you know, certain goals that they want to achieve as a practice owner. Um, and one of the things I find very interesting is just how how different those goals can be from one phone call I have with a, a, a new practice owner to the next. And, you know, for example, you know, we'll have, I'll have clients that I'll talk to and I'll say, do you ever plan on having an associate? And the answer is a 
just a, a very enthusiastic no. Uh, they don't ever want to deal with an associate. How many operatories do you want to work out of? I don't ever want to work out of more than five operatories. Um, you know, how many, um, you know, uh, how many offices do you want to have? Just one. How much in revenue do you want to do? You know, a million dollars. And, you know, that person's goals are very different than someone who I get on the phone with and I say, how many, you know, how, how, do you ever have, plan on having an associate? Yes. Okay, do you ever plan on having any other owners in the practice? Yes. Do you ever, how many offices do you want to have? You know, between five and 10. Um, how many operatories do you want to work out of? As many as I can fill. Um, you know, those two people are, are in very different situations than what they're going to try and achieve as practice owners. So that has to be the first piece of information we take into, in, into our consideration of what should we be owning this real estate or should we not be owning this real estate? Um, once we kind of figure that out, um, and, you know, assuming it lends itself to um, not moving, I mean, that's basically what we're trying to ask ourselves is, do we plan on needing to, to, to need to move this real estate? Um, then the question after that becomes, uh, you know, assuming that becomes down to a yes, because if it comes down to a no, then our job's done. Um, but if it comes down to a yes, then we have to say, okay, how much is this going to be leased for? Like, how, what is our current lease going to be for this practice location? And what would it look like if we're going to buy it? You know, what are our payments going to be? And while that's a very rudimentary way of analyzing buy versus rent, it's really the, the first step. Um, so if the two things are equal, like you alluded to in, 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 in the question, you know, it's not, you know, just that the payment's going to go automatically to equity. Um, it kind of goes also back to the, 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 the last question about home ownership in that you've got to be willing to be there for a long period of time before equity actually even enters into the equation. Now, on a 20-year note from a, on a commercial piece of property, you know, you're going to be harvesting equity a little bit faster, but you still have to be there for a good amount of time um, before that's going to be worth really anything to you. And so you analyze, you know, lease versus mortgage payment. Um, and then you add in all the extra cost on the mortgage payment. Now, the question becomes what happens in that lease? You know, Rob, you're the, you're the, you're the lease expert. You know, some leases have, you know, common area maintenance. Some people will like, you know, I, I rent my office and we have, you know, the, the building I'm in has a janitor. So we get all of our stuff, you know, we get trash checking out and we get floors vacuumed and things like that. If I owned the building, I'd be paying the janitor. Right. Right. Um, I'd have to pay to clean or I'd have to do it myself. Um, so and you, and you pay the real estate taxes depending on the lease, you yeah, know, exactly. you may or may not. Right. You know? So, yeah, exactly. Some, 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 some leases have you pay it. Some people, some don't. Um, oh, so, or if there's, there's a leak in the roof, you're, you're going to fix it. I mean, we're, 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 on, right? we're real estate owners of our own practice. I can say a couple of things as a broker and practice owner and real estate owner. There's definitely energy and effort you have to put into the, uh, you know, practice building. You would a house. Uh, you can, you know, reconcile that by saying there's some investment to that. But there, you know, you're staying after work to meet a contractor about something or something's going wrong. So you can't call anyone. You have to call yourself. And sometimes that's during the middle of a day. The other thing I can say, and especially in the Northeast as a broker, what I've noticed is that when practice real estate is available for sale, most of the time, or what's most likely is that the size of that practice is not set up well for the dentist rest of their dentist life. So, you know, 
I, our office included is a five operatory space. So there's not usually 10 operatory places to buy the real estate. Obviously, I know you guys do startups sure. and you could build one, but that's just something I want the listeners and people who want to buy practice to understand that. And Rob has said this many times in great lectures he's given uh, to our residents and and study club groups that, you know, the most important thing is the money you make being a dentist. And you need, if you need eight operatories in a giant building in Philadelphia, you're not going to have the opportunity to purchase that building, but it could be a great practice versus getting three operatories in a, in a home office on a side street that's going to really um, uh, curtail, or, curtail or limit how much you can earn. So it's just, uh, I, I don't think a lot of dentists looking for practices get that point. And hopefully we're just sort of bringing some value to them in that, in that space. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, whenever you start analyzing these different deals, you have to be able to understand that, you know, there are financial reasons to do things and there are, are non-financial reasons to do things as well. Like, you know, Dr. Paul, you said, you know, you may want to move. Well, we also established in the prior question that moving is not something people want to do. Yeah. You're probably not going to want to do that. Mm -hmm. If you're planning on moving, then that, can a lot of times economically as well as emotionally be a very difficult thing to actually end up doing one way or the other. Yeah, totally. Moving well, is the opposite I, of nachos. That's well, it. It's that's expensive. my catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, it's expensive to move a yeah. dental office, man. Yeah, right. You know, like you, oh, yeah. you get ready. You're, you know, uh, in the average, I, I would guess that move would probably cost you four hundred thousand dollars. You know, to move and build oh, something yeah. out someplace else. So that yeah, ain't cheap. Right. right. So you know, when it comes down to you know, once you look at those different things, you also have to consider, and this is something that, you know, that Rob sets people up with really well, is that if you're leasing from someone, you have a bit of an inherent risk in your business that whenever the lease is up, you may not have a space anymore and you may be forced to move. It, you know, if, if the lease is, is well done and things are reasonable and things like that, that probably won't happen. But to me, that's a very big benefit of owning the real estate is that will never happen mm -hmm. unless you want to, unless you're, you're just wanting to move because of opportunity. Right. Right. So, and, and that's a very, very big, to me, that's a very big risk factor. And what I find, we find a lot is, you know, usually dental practices sell dentist to dentist. And a lot of times the person who owns the real estate is the old dentist. Um, and sometimes they'll want to have, they want to keep going in the real estate so they can have that rental income every month as like a as a retirement type thing, right? Um, but what happens if you know something happens to that dentist and um, you know goes to a family member who is a dentist or something like that? I mean, what happens at that point? You know, whenever that lease runs out, is that person going to be able to just move in to your office and take start a new dental practice? You know, I mean, there's a lot of little factors that go into that 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 are inherent risk of leasing are included in the risk of leasing that just aren't a part of, of, of buying. And I mean, like, I mean, if we have a question of, I can pay you know $3,000 a month as a lease or I can pay $7,000 a month as a, as, a, as a mortgage payment, then that's a, usually gonna be a pretty easy conversation of, you should probably just lease. Right. But if you're saying, okay, it's gonna be $5,000 for a lease and you know $4,500 for a mortgage, then that becomes a lot different. That's a, that's an entirely different question. Well, that's right? a ca and then that's a cash flow positive, you know, decision to make there. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And we see those happen all the time in different areas of the country. We definitely see the ones that are are, are are like the first example rather than the second one. But we see a lot of the time that the rent ends up being very close to what a mortgage payment would be. And I don't know if that's because 
the the seller has figured that out or they had a broker figure that out or if that is what the market dictates in those areas or if it is that maybe that the seller has refinanced it recently and they're just carrying a mortgage on it and they're trying to sell it for whatever they have in it i don't know um but that that is not that uncommon and we see we, we even see it the opposite way we sometimes see you know a mortgage frame it's 3500 and the person who's leasing it wants to lease it for 6500 um and it's a very easy decision at that point to say just buy it and then you know and, and reinvest the four thousand dollar a month cash flow and the paying down debt if you're debt averse uh, if you're not, then you can reinvest that into the practice, you know, for equipment or for CE or for staff training or consulting or whatever it may be. So, so you know, much like the first question, there's a lot of different factors. There's no blanket answer in my mind of it's better to lease than to buy a, a real estate or it's better to buy real estate than to lease. It's it's very specific to each person's situation. Yeah, and and, and it's definitely this as much as anything is really driven by by where you are in the country and what the real estate market is and what the costs are to, to acquire practice. I mean, there are places that we've had clients in the Midwest that it's staggering to me how cheap it is to buy a lot of land and do a project like, mm-hmm. like this. And then meanwhile, somebody's in Seattle and it's so obscenely expensive that, you know, I'm also in disbelief. So they're two very different uh different things that are at work there. But I mean, to me, I come back to, I just think, you know, it's just like everything else that you need to have the proper planning. And, you know, you've, you've used my favorite words numerous times today, Jonathan, which is cash flow, cash flow matters, you know, and, and any decision that you're going to make in business, you need to know what the, the cash flow, uh, you know, repercussions are going to be of that, you know, and how much is it going to cost? How much are you going to make? I mean, even, you know, and when I look at, like, uh, you know, I ran a quick amortization here, you know, on a uh, on a 20 year real estate loan, a third over the, over that 20 years, a third of those payments are for interest. So I think people need to keep in mind that if it's it's not a dollar for dollar thing and that's before you start paying real estate taxes, maintenance, insurance and all that other stuff, you know, and owning real estate, as Paul said, is that's there's something to that. Like it, it's work in and of itself. And I think a lot of times people, uh, I think they overlook that in, in my uh, in my observation. I, I I don't want to pay for a janitor, and I don't or pay. I don't want to have to hire a janitor for my office. I don't want to clean my own office. I mean, I clean my my desk and everything like that, obviously. But you know, I, I like that as an amenity for me leasing, um, and you know, while obviously dental practices will have different things because of just medical reasons. Um, that's that has to go into the to the quote calculation unquote of what is better for me as a as a business owner. And again, you also have to weigh that against all those other risks that we talked about. Service based businesses where you see patients every day is very much different than Rob and I. You know, getting our if, if we don't own our real estate and our lease runs up and we have to move, you know, I can move very easily. It's not going to affect my business at all. Yeah. It's a hassle, but, but it's not. Graduate, yeah, it doesn't cost it's a anything. Hassle. Yeah, it's yeah. a pain. I'll, 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 I'll bitch and moan about it, but yeah. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, it's not that. Be, it's not going to affect my revenue or my cash flow, like you said. Yeah, if, if the um, land, if your landlord told you tomorrow they pay you fifty thousand dollars to move down yeah. the hall, you'd say like, "All right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. get the movers. Yeah. Come on, we're, yeah. we'll do it." But for a dental practice, you know, you're risking losing patients over that because patients are creatures of habit. Like they'll. They'll, they'll, you know, hopefully the phone lines won't be the same, 
But, you know, they may just show up at the office and say, I need to get back on the schedule. And they not, may not even realize it's a different doctor. I mean, that's an extreme example. But, you know, that they may also not seek, seek you out if you have to move. Yeah. I mean, they may get a flyer from the new doctor that moved into your old spot. And that's a very big risk for um, people that put a lot of money into their practices. Yeah. So there's pros and cons of each. And like I said, whenever you're, weigh, you're weighing those non-financial pros and cons, like the risk part of, of leasing, um, you've got to take into context your personal goals, which is the first question. Um, and you know, if, you, if you're planning on moving quickly, you know, if you want to buy the real estate, and it's that that to me isn't you're basically just doing that to um not have to pay somebody else rent which i may and to be to be fair we do see a lot of people that will come in and they're like the real estate is for sale with this practice and the seller doesn't want to sell the practice unless they sell the real estate along with it we 100 percent see that um, so, yeah. Well, here you, you go. Know, Let me stop you there. And that's and yeah. and without going off on too much of a tangent, because we're going to wrap it up soon. But that to me mm-hmm. is a huge thing because what's going on there is what concerns me the most about owning dental real estate, which is mm-hmm. there's really no market to buy of buyers. There's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a market of one basically, the person that's buying your practice. You know, Mm -hmm. these dental offices are so illiquid investments to begin with that, you know, once you get into owning it too, if the only person that can buy it is the person that's going to buy your practice, if they don't buy it, what do you do? Like, when do you sell? There's no real market for people to go around and round up, you know, uh, standalone dental offices, you know, And, and we had a debate a few months back, Paul and I were giving a seminar, and somebody said, well, no, I've got a built-in buyer. I have one, a built-in buyer. You have one built-in buyer for your real estate as opposed to owning mm-hmm. other commercial real estate where you have, you know, as many people in this world who would be interested in an investment on a on a, an apartment building that has a, you know, a, a 10-cap return. You know, like that's, mm-hmm. you know, people are going to line up if it's priced right because that's an investment thing that you could sell. And to me, I look at you can't sell – your building, if you need to, if you need to own your and operate your dental practice there, you know, and so um, if things you know, to me, investments are things that are, that are liquid that can be moved for the most part if if they need to be, and uh, dental office ownership is you are bolded to that, you know, like you're as long as you're practicing there, and you you got you got no choice, you can't you can't afford to sell that. So to me, that makes it a really quirky thing. It does. It does. I mean, if you're if you're taking it from the the perspective of, you know, I'm going to I'm going to continue to have my office there. Will somebody buy this building for me at that point? And that's 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 obviously, uh, you know, it's just commercial real estate at that point. Uh, if you're if you're selling it. Um, I mean, I, I see I see practices. I mean, I, I know a lot of commercial real estate brokers around and they'll send me practices for sale on occasion. Um, I mean, they'll send me, you know, the, 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 the spot being sold. Um, I mean, the, you know, as far as if the, if that is an actual quote investment or not, I mean, real estate obviously is an investment vehicle. Um, otherwise there wouldn't be, you know, REITs or, you know, different people that buy commercial real estate in general. Um, you know, having, and, and you know, I, 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 so I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. Um, 
but the the way I'm thinking about it is like if I had a hundred if I you know if money was something I had a, a lot of <laughs> um, and I had a hundred opportunities to buy practice locations that had a practicing dentist in there that was going to continue to give me a lease that goes along with that. Now, I would think that'd be a pretty safe investment, you know, so I would think that the return on that would have to be a little bit less than I'd be, I'd be willing to take a little bit less return for the safety of said investment because traditionally, you know, just like the reasons banks lend money to dentists to build practices, typically practices stay in one location. Uh, right. So that's just a counter argument to, to kind of what you're saying. Yeah, no, it's good. It's an interesting point. Well, um, this has been great, Jonathan. It's been too long coming, and I'm glad uh, glad you were able to take the time today and, and join us. So, uh, if uh, if dentists want to uh, find you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So uh, I'm on all the social medias. Uh, I don't know how to use all of them, but I'm on there. Um, Paul, can you please help Jonathan with with social media? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I get, I get, you don't know how many times I've gotten a Facebook message and it'll be from like four months ago. I'm like, oh man, I forgot to check my messages. Um, Some of them just kind of end up in these weird places. If you're not friends with them, that I'll sometimes look at like approve this message. You're like, where'd that come from? You know, it's uh, right. It's not. It's not like. Yeah, the, it's not like a business type of uh, format that we're all used to. Like all right. your messages are in one place. It's like kooky. Right. So the, the safest way to get a hold of me is through email. Uh, I have my email up on one monitor all day long, uh, and that's just my name, Jonathan J O N A T H A N at dentistmetrics.com. That's the safest way to get a hold of me. Um, that those emails come to me. Um, if not there, you can go to dentist metrics.com d-e-n-t-i-s-t-m-e-t-r-i-c-s.com um, and we have all of our information up there um, and you can learn more about our practice and things like that uh, and that's 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 the easiest way to be able to get a hold of us cool and then of course your podcast you're on uh, itunes and all the usual places start your dental practice yep. too exactly start your dental practice and we have if you go to start your dental practice.com it'll bring up a list of all the you know, 100 hours or whatever it is of content that we have up there for free. Yeah, awesome stuff. Well, uh, all the, we'll put all this up in the show notes too. So if anyone's in their car and they want to find Jonathan's email address, they don't have to. Uh, they don't have to try to write and uh, why they drive. Uh, you can you can find it on the show notes. And and Jonathan, uh, thanks again. It's been uh, a pleasure as always chatting. Thanks, with you. Jonathan. You come to Philly, chicken nachos on me. So there's your sounds good. Deductible <laughs> tax deductible yeah, tax chicken deductible nachos. nachos. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.